Hey, Kwaku, how are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I am well. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm not sure, but it's okay conversation because we know that's uh, just life and we're letting others in on some of our treasured conversations and um, catching up for the two of us more so. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right to me. Yeah, yeah. We're we're catching up. We're catching up. So um, I am enjoying this breeze (laughs) and the rain is we need a cleansing going on around here. Detroit and the world, so yeah. So I'm I'm actually out of town for the moment. I'll be back on Sunday, but uh, oh, cool. I'm about, yeah, I'm back in the DMV area. Uh, I'm okay. originally from Alexandria, Virginia, and mm-hmm. so uh, it was my sister and nephew's birthday this last Monday, and so I got to come out and uh, celebrate with them, which was great. That is beautiful. So you're one of how many children? Uh, it's just two of us. Uh, I have okay. a half sister as well. Um, okay. But, um, yep. <laughs> Speaking of that, I just reminded myself that um, I got a. I just well, and then here we go. Yeah, uh, the name <laughs> not sure, but it's okay, right? It's like right, uh, right. <laughs> I just recently got connected to my half sister, literally from the last month, and uh, she's the oldest. She's based in London, and. Uh, we had been texting each other. We were supposed to talk. And this just reminded me that um, I think I need to reach out to her again to find the time to talk with her. So anyway. Yeah. So these conversations are very, very important um, personally, professionally, and to share um, being more transparent as we both know working in corporate America, work, working in those uh, larger entities and just uh, navigating the uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. Sometimes it could be lonely or you feel like you're the only one um, pushing through certain scenarios, but it's so good to have the ear and the shoulder and the tug of those who have preoccupied that space or who want to travel that journey along with you. So, yeah. So I'm glad that you two are connected and look forward to that conversation on another time because, yeah, that's interesting um, yeah. to connect later on in life, but to still have that that opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we connected um, because of our commitment to children and pouring into them. And That's right. you came and introduced us to a whole new way of uh, doing currency <laughs> and building uh, economic stamina, so to speak. Excuse me, close the door. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was through. Uh, cooperative capital and I noticed that you have shifted gears into more real estate um, focused but it's still all bringing the community along where did that passion come from just really digging in and uplifting the community and saying hey we can we can do this together as opposed to you know having a few 
Yeah, uh, so I think it really came from a deep embedded fear uh, as well as desire. Uh, And so, you know, uh, when I was growing up in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, uh, in Section 8 housing and such. And and I felt, though, a real sense of community um, that I haven't really felt since up until moving to Detroit. Um, and I moved to Detroit in the summer of 2013. And even I didn't feel it ex- immediately. It wasn't until I started getting to some of the neighborhoods um, in Detroit and really started to connect with some of the folks on the ground there um, in a more meaningful way that I really started to feel what I felt when I was a child. And it really appears that in every decade, um, in recent uh, um, history in America anyway, that that sense and feeling of community has all but withered away. Um, and, you know, I think even within Detroit, there's, there's stories that I've heard that, you know, it was a much more, uh, tight knit, uh, much more interconnected community. And even what I'm experiencing now is just, um, you know, uh, a, a ghost or a skeleton of what's, what it once was. I can only imagine, um, what it might've been before. So in any event, um, I, uh. It's twofold, right? It was this desire to reconnect in a really deep way um, because I felt like that the um, the real sense of community all but disappeared after the Great Recession. And so I really felt like it was an economic-based thing. And, and, and I've since like added a little bit more texture to that. I think, <laughs> excuse me if I'm talking all with like, you know, but in any event, uh, I feel like people want to be more civically and socially engaged but unfortunately, that's become a luxury. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are just working extremely hard. So, so yeah, um, you know, the other, the other thing kind of came from fear. And that was like, you know, you now, we now live in a situation where we have a lot of wealthy people Investing in technology is like going to replace the typical person's means of uh, getting gainful employment. And uh, there's no reasonable reason to believe that once um, these wealthy people get their fill, um, as far as like money that they, that they get, that all of a sudden they're going to play nice, you know. Um, of course, you know, some of them have created foundations and such, but that, you know, it's just kind of patchwork to a lot of the damage um, that they've helped create. So uh, that really frightened me because things are, for a lot of uh, Americans, are bad as it is. And it's much easier at this moment to paint a more bleak picture than it is to be able to paint a beautiful picture. And so I really started to you know, see that. You know, um, Here's the last thing I'll say. When I moved to Detroit, I first saw Detroit uh, summer of 2011 um, when it was wildly different than what I saw in the summer of 2013. Um, and I moved to Detroit, as you might recall, summer of 2013 was when Detroit formally went through its bankruptcy, but it was already, it was already a major upswing in play. That bankruptcy at that point was just formality. And so I saw and witnessed that there were a tremendous amount of people that saw the, the resurgence happening. And a lot of folks wanted to participate, but felt like because they weren't a billionaire, millionaire, celebrity, a politician, that they couldn't. And, um, and I know that that's not true, but you know, the, the idea alone stopped a a lot of people from even trying 
And so uh, when you think about cooperative capital, really what we're, what we're kind of saying is, okay, what we can't do alone, we can't do together. And actually there's some really strong benefits to doing this type of thing together. Um, and so anyway, I could talk on and on about that if you want me to, but um, but that's where this really came from. It was just like, what what is a way for us to to come together to collectively build, invest, and in, in, yeah, build up our community in a way that we all benefit versus the one-sided nature of things that we started to see with a very few number of people really getting to dictate and direct what the future of Detroit would look like. And that just didn't, that that, that wasn't right. And it, it, it didn't feel right at the time. It isn't right. And, and so on and so forth. And it was like, you know, I saw that there were a number of people that, you know, um, wanted to have a voice slash choice in what happened around them. Uh, but I also saw that, you know, a number of folks started to almost feel like window shoppers of their own community. That's very unnatural. And so any event, yeah. Very unnatural and unnecessary. And so thank you for um, being one of the few bringing communities together that I was aware of. Um, I watched from afar. I, I peeked in on a couple of chats. I <laughs> said, um, too, too much going on at the time to fully embrace it. But when you share that story with our children and families during our financial empowerment series, it gave me another level of both respect and admiration for your resilience. I mean, you you had only been here what six seven I think it was 2018 we did that seven years um, and and yeah you, at that point I, at 2018 I was there five years yeah okay so from 2013 through so um, yeah and you you studied and you decide I'm going to do something else and you invited others along your journey and sometimes we need someone out front who is knowledgeable who is trustworthy that we can follow your lead. I mean, you had spent some time um, learning about the grassroots movement, the needs, you saw the shifts in the community based on even the reason that you came into the community and you saw a different way to serve and beyond serving, um, lift others up so that they can continue to move forward, whether you're by their side or you know, whatever the direction was, but to take ownership. So thank you for that. Like to oh, ask thank you. you. <laughs> what was really interesting just for a moment there is, mm-hmm. you know, what brought me to Detroit in the first place was a fellowship program. And through that fellowship, mm-hmm. I ended up getting to, I uh, got a dream, you know, a lifetime type of opportunity where I got to work with Dan Gilbert. Now, you know, projects. I wanted you to talk about that. So thank you. Keep going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's what brought me to Detroit. And, you know, again, I first saw Detroit, Summer 2011, when no offense to the city or any mm-hmm. residents within the city, but the mm-hmm. downtown area at the time was empty and desolate. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked because uh, Detroit in 2011 wasn't in the national narrative. And so this is my first time coming. And I was really excited to come because Detroit is globally well known for good reason. But I mm-hmm. get there and downtown is kind of like, OK, what's going on here? And mm-hmm. they tried it to, uh, I was there for three weeks on a brief engagement and um, with Deloitte, uh, mm-hmm. where, which is where I started my career, uh, with Deloitte Consulting, that is. Mm-hmm. And in any event, um, they tried to show us, you know, Slows was around at the time. 
But I remember going to some of the less glamorous areas, and there were many more at that point. And I remember just being shocked. Like, I remember thinking, like, oh, my goodness gracious, where else might this be happening across America? Because it just wasn't the news. So then when I came back in 2013, it was not even night and day. It was so much better. Um, There was the beach. uh, Downtown was filled with people. It was just like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I couldn't believe that it happened in such a short um, time frame. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I feel very, very fortunate that I got to see Detroit at that point twice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That one time where I had this, what the, you know, fill in the blank uh, type of uh, response. (laughs) And then the second time where I had it again, but like for like a different reason. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, wow. And, And then I got to work with Dan, who at the time was being heralded as, you know, the the gentleman who was, uh, quote unquote, leading Detroit's renaissance. And so what was really fascinating about that was getting to kind of be in the in the car with him as he was driving this vehicle to try to uh, move Detroit forward. But he was um, and in no fault of his own, you know, he had a vision. He was executing the vision, but it was his vision. And he did, you know, incorporate um, he did get, you know, uh, best-in-class consultants from across the world to help him think through uh, placemaking strategies and, and, and different types of ways to array Detroit in a certain way. But it was largely being directed by him and a close team. And I, I was a part of that close team. I was very fortunate for it. Uh, but what wasn't there was the typical resident mm-hmm. or any of the residents, matter of fact, <laughs> for the fact of the matter. Because even amongst the team, I'm not sure that any of them lived in Detroit. I, in truth, might have been the only person. Well, so anyway, we'll skip all that. Um, well, you know, no, no, no. Um, you you bring up a concern in most urban cities. And, um, you know, so it's, it's necessary um, because you can only go so far, even with the best of intentions. If you don't have community buy-in, you um, you disrupt legacy, you disrupt families, you disrupt communities. And while you think you're building a stronger, sustainable community, is stronger and sustainable for who? Yeah. If you don't include the residents. And so um, I encourage you to continue with that conversation um, because it's, it's a timely conversation considering, even considering the fact that you had that experience years ago, my friend, Dr. Andre Perry, um, has studied urban cities like Detroit and our housing value and some similar experiences from Philadelphia, Louisiana, Alabama, and, and Detroit through his research with the Brookings Institute um, as a fellow, know your price, know your value, know your worth, and how we, um, in majority African American or Black communities, are undervalued, and therefore we we miss out. And that's a piece of the puzzle. Some people have mm-hmm. really good intentions, and you know we get so set in our silos, even in educational institutions, you know, my background is education. We Uh, get so set with these (laughs) best practices that we don't collectively make 
it a priority to bring those we are serving and those we want to support into the conversation. It's like, we're not saviors. We can't serve without bringing them in to ask them what they need. We know what will help them, but if we don't have any buy-in, you know, it's just constant tension. So thank you for bringing that up and please continue. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because now uh, you bring to mind, um, so Alicia Merriweather, who's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Deputy Director DPS, Yes. I got I was one of the lucky 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 people that happened to be at the uh, University of Michigan's uh, I think Bicentennial their 200 year celebration this was like a couple years ago now mm-hmm. and she was given a speech that was just remarkable and at the end of it and I'm afraid that I'm going to get the quote wrong but you paraphrase <laughs> go yeah, ahead and paraphrase <laughs> yep paraphrasing so she said something like do nothing about me without me. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was. Wow. And it was when she said it and the way she said it, it was so powerful. And you know what? As soon as that speech was over, I ran straight up to her. And we've been friends since actually. So that's so <laughs> but it was like, yeah, like, but you know what? I also learned that it's it's extremely it's it's a it's it's nuanced because on one end, if you try to uh, so we all have it's nuanced because it's a balancing act at the end of the day if you try to please everyone you may never get anything done Exactly. Um, and and then there are different levels of informed folks in any respective community mm-hmm. and so to try to get a collective vision is really difficult I find um, with very few exceptions um, on the flip side though I think the real deal is not not engaging at all is a real deal issue and not being open to listening to folks, especially those that have opinions and have a desire to uh, help uh, shed light and create a more, uh, I guess, uh, to create a dialogue. So in, in many communities, I think you and I have um, seen, there are no shortage of people that are like, hey, yep, I'm happy to tell you what I would like here. Uh, but don't just tell me that you're going to come here and put in a, a a cheese cafe because I don't need a cheese cafe. What I really need is, you know, a, a local garden or whatever it may be. So, uh, it, but it, it is it is difficult. What I, and I, what I realize is in our society, which is um, heavily, as you know, it's a capitalistic society. So unfortunately, those with capital don't necessarily need permission. Um if they have enough money, they basically could do what, what they want um, to a degree. Um, and that's that's a lot of what we're seeing, um, which is unfortunate. But I think now a lot of what is starting to emerge is the, uh, the kind of, um, I won't say the protest, but the, uh, the, lack of acceptance of that way. Like we aren't just gonna have you dictate what's gonna happen in our backyard. No, you know, and and, and that is a beautiful thing because uh, yeah, I think, you know, what's been happening over the last 30 plus years has just been very unnatural and we normalized it, but it should have never been normalized. Yes, and there are, you know, so many people who were uncomfortable speaking up. They had a voice, but their message wasn't 
necessarily being carried over um, or was crowded out. And then there are others who are in there looking like, you know, hey, sit her down, sit him down. Um, nobody else feels that way. Mm. There aren't enough people that feel that way um, in order, you know, for us to really look at it. Um, and even when I was a principal, I used to tell, I used to tell parents that brought concerns to me, you know, I work for a management company. I can only go so far. I mean, I can go and carry that message and give a stronger push. But what I was trying to do was position them so that when they move on, I was a middle school principal, when they move into high school, college, I taught them how to advocate for their children, for their families, and the power of the customer because they are a customer, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? And so I would tell them or encourage them to uh, gather their friends, write a note to me. Um, they all sign it and to CC the superintendent and CC um, and they can just put it in the attachment. They don't necessarily need to do it. <laughs> CC the superintendent, CC the, um, the state department of education, depending on what it was, you know, like, mm -hmm. all right, um, this is my next step. Like I'm serious. Mm -hmm. And only because I knew that I had to, I had the ear of my management company. I went in there and as the newer principal coming in, you know, these more seasoned principals, um, I, I had to disrupt the pay uh, structure. I was like, well, hold on. No, I can't come for this amount. And then to find out that these um, principals, seasoned principals, we're not even making what I was asking as a brand new principal. Mm. Okay? And then I also noticed that um, I needed the support of those seasoned principals because I was mm. already disrupting something within yeah. the system that why is it she came in and they're listening to her, not me. I needed their support. Um, and to, to, and I wanted them to understand that, Hey, I'm advocating for all of us, but to right. them, it looked like I, I, you know, it was all about me and I was being selfish. So I, I decided to take that approach so that the management company could see that, okay, this is not about her because she's made her demands and we've leaned into them. Mm -hmm. Now, she has a community with um, 200 plus on the waiting list to get in her school. Um, we need to listen, you know, yeah. and we need to look at the entire system. Well, there are people like you and I and Alicia Merriweather did an amazing, amazing job um, advocating for all families, for all students for all employees, administrators, and just the Detroit that we know and the, and, and the education system that we know we need it in order to retain and attract talent um, and more sustainable communities. But I'm sure she felt like she was on an island sometimes too. Oh yeah, you know? oh yeah. <laughs> I can hear it in her voice, so to drop the mic, with that statement, it's like, yes. And so we we need that collective 
dialogue, that creative dialogue you mentioned. We need that collective vision and to some way, somehow shape it. And we need to prepare people to stand on their own so that we don't feel like we're standing on our own, but to stand up on behalf of others, I should say, not alone. Right. And to know that they aren't alone, even though they don't hear the voices of others. Right. So, yeah. So, so thank you for, for doing that and for bringing that forward because, yeah, we feel like you're on an island until you hear stories like this, until you're in rooms like, um, you, you know, those community spaces that you're navigating or to hear someone speaking at a university of Michigan, but still that's a certain audience, you know, those that's who right. don't feel equipped or feel like their voice is enough. That's what it boils down to, that it, that it's valued or that it's enough. They don't, they don't always get that. They get that one way communication. So Yeah. And you know, uh, what's interesting uh, about what you shared is you basically just laid out a framework help people understand how they could go into those type of situations because you're absolutely right if it's just if it's just your voice and it's seen as a single voice it's very easy to roll uh you know uh, run over one voice mm -hmm. but if it's multiple voices and it's very clear that 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 multiple voice is loud enough and it actually is a full contingent it's mm -hmm. much harder for them to be able to do that and mm -hmm. most people don't understand how to properly aggregate folks in such in an effective manner that will allow them to you know um have their voice effectively be heard and have their demands effectively seen and so yes. that's so huge because to your point it really does feel like when you're in those rooms if you're i mean especially when we're in those rooms it's typically we're the only people of color mm -hmm. or the only black people mm -hmm. and so when we speak up it's like you know, <laughs> but like, fortunately, what I realized, I've never had a problem doing that. Yes. I really, uh, uh, for the longest time, didn't understand why anyone else had a problem doing it. Uh, but I've gotten a little more, I guess, as I've matured and I've better understood that uh, it's a little more complicated. Like, for whatever reason, I don't have a filter when it comes to this type of stuff, but a lot of people do. And I better understand why. Yes. Uh, I also understand that a lot of specifically females have a problem of actually being heard. They'll say a statement in a board meeting or in an office uh, setting and not be heard. And then a male gentleman could repeat the same exact thing there mm -hmm. directly after and be heard. And so, yes. you know, with very limited exception, I've never experienced that. So I just didn't understand that that was the dynamic that anyone had to deal with until I got more mature and started to really be more attentive to what's happening around me. Um, so, but yeah, but, but when you're in those type of situations and if you've had those type of experiences, it really does make you a lot more cautious about when you might speak up um, and for what reasons. And the truth of the matter is there shouldn't, I, I, you know, I don't feel like that that should be a part of the equation. Whenever you have something valuable to add or beneficial to share, it should be every time, in my opinion, and I don't think there's almost anything that's too small to voice your thought or opinion um, when there is, in, in the right form, a meaningful discussion and or debate happening. So, uh, um, Yeah, yeah. Well, some of it is how um, little boys and little girls are... Uh, raised, I'll just use that, how they're nurtured, 
and um, staying in your place, so to speak. It depends on your family, like your upbringing and um, those who help your parent, your, your village, you know, so your parents, your immediate family unit may have said, do this, do that based on their past experiences because they can only give us what they have. Mm-hmm. And until you have a different experience, a different setting, um, and, and a village member to uh, show you a different way, you don't know that there's a different way because you've only had this experience. And that's why it's important for us to look for opportunities to show people a different way um, with under, you know, with making time also to understand why they responded that way and, mm-hmm. you know, just showing them different options. Um, additionally, we don't share our pain enough. Mm. You know, we don't share our pain openly. It's our pain. Suck it up. Keep going. As a culture, up until recent years, we just were sharing them in what were deemed as safer spaces. Because if you're the head of a household, and I don't care what your nationality or background is, it's you know that the culture corporate culture or your again family upbringing um, if, if you were told to go to work stay in your place don't ruffle any feathers mm-hmm. do your job and come home you, you never knew you had a voice never knew you had an opinion even if someone gave you a survey or called you in the office you're hesitant because you're looking at body language based on what media, community, historically we've we've seen. So we don't want to disrupt anything. Until we become more self-aware and self-assured and know that we add value more than just performing a task, that our opinion matters and that we are placed on this earth to bring our uniqueness, our unique perspective and to share a voice. And yep. that it's okay if someone doesn't accept it. At least we can say we shared it. There are yep. so many people who are not at that place. I have never been one. I am not a conformist. I will come back around to you. If you, I mean, you know, I used to get angry too. Like, oh, you don't hear me. But it started with my dad. I would, you know, he would tell me no. And I didn't know if no meant today <laughs> mm, mm, <laughs> when it came to going mm, to the mall we joke about this now he would say no you can't go to the mall you can't go over here and stay there we, we you know my parents didn't let me stay overnight everywhere we didn't do that um mm. so that whole sleepover thing is like mm, mm, mm. yeah uh, for, for a variety of reasons but my dad would tell me no i can do something that day and i'm like okay well maybe because i need to do all my chores and eventually i started asking my dad more direct questions, which of course he didn't like because right, as I say, right, not right. as I do. And right. I had to figure out a way to communicate with my father <laughs> and ask him. So that was my practice. And ask him, so dad, um, is it bad timing? Can I go next weekend? Uh, you know, and he, I eventually got him to the point to tell me that it's not safe if I can't drive and pick you up or this or that, you know, give me the rationale behind it. So in turn, I eventually, as a parent, that's how I started parenting my child because I couldn't stand being told no with no explanation. Tell me mm-hmm. why so that 
I won't ask you that again, or yeah. you know, I'll figure out how to ask differently or under different circumstances. Well, yeah. after that conversation with my dad, I went to school doing that. That's how I operated. And that's what people knew me by. Like, I listened and then I discerned how and when to ask a question so that I can make sure you hear me. You know, I'm not going to ask you a question just because I'm not going to buck the system just because I'm not being difficult. And I'm usually advocating, not necessarily for me, but for others. Like, okay, so why do we have to wait? One example, I'll let you get back to what you're saying. One example during school is like, why do we have to wait to have a, um, a, I forgot the name of the society, a society, a junior honor society. Why do we have to wait to have a, 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 a National Honor Society in high school? Why can't we have it now? We have smart people here now. Blah, 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 blah. And I was challenged by a teacher. Go and do the research and um, you present it to me and I will be a sponsor. And mm-hmm. so as a result, Miller Middle School, <laughs> which is now U Prep uh, Elementary School, that's my building, we had our inaugural junior honor society just because I posed a question, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone wasn't going to cast tag or, you know, these other um, um, schools that we had to test into. They weren't going into, they weren't even interested in that. Well, you you know, you get, you get a lot of folks mad if you don't say Renaissance and with cast tag. So (laughs) So let's go ahead and just say that. Come on, can you tell us a cast tag grad? Okay, okay. Just now King. Oh yeah. Yep. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, you are really into um, the Detroit uh, narrative and way to be, as you know, <laughs> your people, <laughs> especially your generation. So I was never one of those cats. You know, I didn't get into that. I just did what I did. But um, early on, you know, I would be that that voice. Like, why not? I just wanted to know why not. I mean, there was probably a rationale behind, but why not? So spilled off over into my parenting and then actually into the last full-time position I had before becoming an entrepreneur. So, you know, I was like, well, maybe, you know, they have their agenda and they didn't hear me. It wasn't as important. (laughs) So I would bring it up in my individual meeting and or in the next time we all came together as a team. But I figured out a way for them to hear me and I would just present it differently because I knew it would set us on a different path. It would enhance what we, the work that we were doing. Um, it was in the healthcare industry. The work that we were doing to advocate for our patients and our vendors. I knew it would help us. So I figured out a different way. And so hopefully I was modeling for my former team members um, who, you know, approached it differently. But come back around to it because it matters. Don't just walk away. And you're doing that through uh, cooperative capital. And I, you know, I want you to speak about it differently. What, what has changed since first starting cooperative capital and how you engage community and encourage them to speak up and to advocate for themselves, to be a part of this economic resurgence um, in Detroit globally and in their family because they're building legacy as well every time they show up. Yeah, well, one of the things I want to share that I really appreciate, but what you just shared is that um, 
explaining to, to, to someone why no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you parallel that to the typical town hall meeting mm-hmm. where, you know, a resident proposes something and they just get told no and uh, and not given any context of why not. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I, so I make it a practice because of how destructive that is, right? Someone mm-hmm. just being told, no, that isn't going to work or that's that's going to be impossible. But not explaining why it might be impossible never gives that person the understanding they may need to then go back to the drawing board, take their idea and reconfigure it in a way that now it is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just... Um, so anyway, I make it a practice that whenever someone reaches out to me, um, sometimes it takes a little more time, which is why it's much easier to just say no mm-hmm. and stop that or no, it's impossible. We can't do that, blah, blah, blah. But I want to make sure that people actually understand uh, what what the limitations or constraints are. Mm-hmm. And that will then allow them to work within parameters or maybe not. But at least now they have a better understanding of the reality so they don't feel just like they were being dismissed um and i really appreciate you kind of sharing how you've carried that on into your parenting and, and a lot of ways you do that because that's just a, that's an effective way of helping people elevate themselves um, yes because it can like yeah. you say can tear you down you know when you think about the times that we felt stuck um in any area of our lives and you dig deeper to kind of uproot that feeling because you know that's ego um, to uproot it when you dig deeper it's because somebody said or did something or dismissed you as you mentioned mm-hmm. and and that wasn't their intention to hold you back but it's stuck with you and it and, and sometimes it was sometimes it was yeah um, well they didn't know the impact they just wanted to be done with that I want to believe that you know I'm just being optimistic <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yep. You're like, okay, you can have that, Tony. You can have that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, to answer your question, um, as it relates to cooperative capital, you know, it's interesting because uh, next week, two days ago, was four years ago from me quitting my uh, last full time job. Mm-hmm. And very soon after, I formally started cooperative capital. So that's like in a couple of weeks will be my four year mark on this journey. And it's been an extremely arduous one, uh, one with many, many, many lows, mm-hmm. uh, but a few very worthwhile highs. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, the, the the cooperative capital journey has been one of many, many lows, um, but a few very worthwhile highs. And on the high side, you know, from the very beginning, there was, you know, a tremendous amount of momentum and demand and desire. What we've learned is that there's a lot of people that, that want to divest from uh, Wall Street and want to invest locally within their community, but it's just like peculiarly hard to do so. And therefore people don't. And, um, you know, that's what we were that's what we were created to do on the flip side um and i i you know basically uh we've had some real deal regulatory battles with the state of michigan um lars securities uh, office um we've been investigated three times by them 
And I sat there and did the math a month ago. Um, and a month ago was the 46 month mark. So I think I think I might have shared this. Um, correct, uh, forgive me if I did. But um, two days ago was four years from me quitting my full time job. And then, you know, I started Cooperative Capital formally uh, soon after. In any event, last month was 46 months. And I sat there and did the math. And those three investigations cumulatively lasted 13 months. And as a result of them, there was an additional 10 months we couldn't do anything with cooperative capital. And um, it was stop and go, stop and go, stop and go. And so that experience made me personally feel like the boy that cried wolf. Because I got all these people really excited about what we're going to do to then have a battle come on and then have me disappear for a while to then reemerge get people excited to then you know go through that cycle an additional two times mm. and um and also i mean imagine uh i know you can imagine what this did when i started cooperative capital i had um some money <laughs> you know i started uh-huh. with money in my bank account and and then saw that money wither away uh because there were things that i thought we would be able to do in our first year that we're now just getting uh, ready to finally do four years later, essentially. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful because I got a real deal education. It's not an education that I wanted. I did not learn things that uh, I wanted to know, but I'm so much more enlightened and uh, knowledgeable about the the true order of things or the current, the true reality of things as a result of it. And that has made me a lot more resilient and a lot just, you know, I, I, I am a bit more open-eyed and almost every situation that I may find myself or enter into as a result of what I went through in this journey. And so, um, so any event, um, very fortunately, recently we got a grant from the Ford foundation that is supporting a new strategy, um, that we've developed as a result of these investigations and the beauty of it is that um, we are effectively converting cooperative capital into open source project. So don't think of it as a online playbook or toolkit, but think of it more so like an online based GPS system where mm. we're combining, you know, some information, education, uh, engaging content, legal guardrails and tools we together in the tech platform that we've developed that will take a community of residents a community organization or even a community champion through four steps that will take them from where they are today to ultimately doing the collective community-based investing we always envisioned. And I got to admit that the original vision um, and original strategy for cooperative capital cannot light a candle to what we're going to do now. And we wouldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for some of the uh, I hate to call it bullying, but that's kind of what I've found out it was uh, by our state mm-hmm. regulators. Um, mm-hmm. And so in any event, the beauty of the new strategy is, uh, whereas before we were looking to rely on uh, state legislation, um, a state-based exemption that was passed um, in 2013, now we're relying on federal regulation. And, hey, man, um, that's a leveling up. Come yeah. On. Yeah. Come on. So, you got it. You got it. And so um, we're actually, oh, wow. yeah, we're, we're actually going to Quit be that. relaunching Cooperative Capital uh, under this new strategy this Saturday, August 1st. And um, 
and I will be uh, stepping down as CEO, but will be remaining um, as chairman. Um, so I will be very engaged in advisor capacity, uh, but I had to step mm-hmm. down from my latest venture, which is really mm-hmm. popping off. And it's starting to get to the point where I realized that I wouldn't be able to responsibly serve in the leadership capacity of cooperative capital, given what's going on with this newest venture, which is called Pharmacy Food. However, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to assemble a team of folks I really admire to continue the journey. And so the new CEO is going to be named on August 12th. And um, we're going to be doing a relaunch party on August 12th to announce that and celebrate uh, what she is going to do. Uh, with cooperative capital okay. and the team that um, is assembled around her, and so, so yeah, I, you know, it was tough. I ain't gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. I nearly lost my mind because there were there was a number of opportunities that I had turned down to continue to do this cooperative capital thing, and all I was attempting to do uh, throughout this journey was to do what I felt was good, good, good. That is so amazing. So. We will make sure we drop a link about that so that um, those uh, who are listening can um, join. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, you, everything that you're doing, again, is um, empowerment. Economic empowerment is still comes back to self-awareness, resiliency, and economic empowerment. And I saw on on LinkedIn, and I'm super excited to see this evolve and to chat with you, even for a few moments, about your Support Our Black Women Leaders. Mm, yes. Oh, come on with uh, that. Let me speak Tell briefly. me more. So, uh, I don't know. Okay, I'll just put it this way. I was well. You 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 jumped out there with yeah. For me, that is that acknowledgement coming from a male, and to see those who are you know I'm on the outside looking in, see others embracing it. That other men asking how to support. Tell us about that. Yeah. Why you started it? So where is that at this point? I will just outright admit that I did not think there would be an it. And I did not think that it would become what it has become, but I am so thankful that it has because I've gotten so much out of it. So I woke up super duper early on a Saturday, June 13th. I, I woke up at like four in the morning. I don't know why, because mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I was having a good time the night before. And so I just got up <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and something just hit me, given all the stuff that was happening with, uh, you know, uh, support outpouring or all of these organizations and people talking about Black Lives Matter. And I know what it was, in fact. It was um, the week before I'd been talking to a number of foundations and investors, uh, some of which were um, going to be supporting, are going to be supporting cooperative capital, some of which mm-hmm. are supporting our, my newest venture. And it was interesting that, you know, some of these investors as well as some of these foundation heads want to dive deep into my personal story. And so as I was, I mean, with one of the um, foundation folks, uh, I was talking to Kevin Ryan, the Ford Foundation, and a couple other folks, but I, we went deep into my personal background and I started mm-hmm. sharing stories from college. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, <laughs> just really briefly, um, what that brought about was it, made, it highlighted for me the ways that I've come across historical black women 
and um and just the brief examples that i give which is an original post that uh the the spring of 2010 i got to meet the uh lillian lincoln lambert who is the first african-american woman to receive her harvard uh sorry her mba from harvard business school mm-hmm. and um that was amazing that same year later just a couple months later i would find myself interning with Xerox and their global corporate head, uh, headquarters in Norwalk, Connecticut, where uh, through my internship, I got to meet with her. Um, uh, and she being the first African-American woman to lead um, a Fortune 500 company as CEO. So, uh, so yeah, what I've realized is that throughout my life, I've had strong black women and just black women period support protect and encourage me and just really push me forward and as I was reflecting this early Saturday morning I was kind of just thinking like but what what have they gotten in return what have they been afforded in this country and realized to myself that I don't I didn't see the same type of encouragement protection etc and even despite that, there's still all of these strong, black, powerful women just doing the damn thing. And then further than that, I found a report um, that basically share, showed, um, documented the lack of financial support black women are given in America. Um, and in fact, in that report that I'm uh, talking to, um, it was, a, it, it was uh, from a venture capital funding standpoint, over the last decade, black women have gotten 0. 0.00, um, is it 0006 or 006 percent? So not even, not even a percent of all the venture capital money that has flown to all of these startups over the last decade, 0. 0.0, let's just say 006, but it might be 0006 percent has gone to a black woman. And so that is a travesty. Um, so in any event, um, I was thinking about all of this and 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 um, it inspired me to write this post because I could think of all of the great women, great black women I've come across over, you know, my lifetime. And so I just named many of them that I, I kind of just did it off the top of my head. And very fortunately, <laughs> I was able to name so many. But Facebook had... Um, a 50 naming person limit. Um, otherwise, they counted as spam. So in the post, original post, which is on Facebook, I was like, man, maybe I need to create a list. Would you guys want to see a list of some of these black women? And people were like, yes. So it led me to creating a list. Uh, and then I'm like, let me not do what I say others are guilty of. Let me not just assume that I know what these women want or what would be helpful to them. So I, I sent out a survey to uh, the women that I listed and asked them what would be helpful. And by far and large, they shared three things. Um, one was they wanted a spotlight on their work and their efforts. They wanted support um, for their work. And they wanted to be able to connect with other powerful black women. And so what started off with, as just a post moved on to a list, um, a Google Google uh, sheet list of listing them. 
And then uh, based on them saying that they wanted uh, support and resources for their work, I created a GoFundMe where um, we are looking to raise a million dollars that will support them. And initially the idea was that we would distribute that evenly amongst the women. But actually we had our first gathering last week. It was powerful. And within that gathering, um, what was decided was instead of doing equal distributions, we're going to take that those donations and conf- uh, basically create a, a fund slash resource pool that will support these women's ventures, their nonprofits, as well as other women outside of this group. So now, uh, pretty soon, uh, we're, we're, we're putting together the structure and such, but pretty soon we will have, uh, uh, as we get towards right now, um, we've raised a little over nine grand. So we're far, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we're, we're far away for now, but we are, there are a number of really exciting developments like um, that will, will be unveiled in the next few weeks that will really bring more spotlight and shine to this effort. And as we march towards a million dollars pretty soon, um, people will be able to potentially get funding from this group of women and uh, funding support is if it's a for-profit venture, it's an investment. If it's a nonprofit venture, a social type of endeavor, then it's going to be a grant, a mini grant. But that man, that alone is powerful. And the fact that they suggested it was just it, it just warmed my heart because I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe me of all people didn't think of that, but they did. And and now that's 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 the road we're going on. And it's a much more powerful than powerful one than the original. Um, idea that I was thinking about but I, again I'll be forthright in that I did not have any vision I did not believe that it would get to this point I merely was just started with this post trying to honor black women and it's grown into this and I'm so happy it has because many of them have thanked me which has been wild to me Because, but anyway many of them have thanked me and I'm like yo like you don't understand I'm getting so much more from this then you all, if even if we raise the million dollars and we invest those things into things that end up having a return on investment that are a set up, you know, monumental things, I still would have gotten so much more out of this experience because what it's done for me is it's uh, allowed me, I've now inundated myself and immersed myself in this power that they are. And it's inspired me every day. I get to dive a little deeper into the greatness that has always been around me. And I always knew that they were dope. Uh, well, I mm-hmm. shouldn't say dope. I always knew they were great, but now I better understand why. And now mm-hmm. I'm getting to see before my eyes the way that they are coming together to collaborate and network to do things in ways that um, it's just powerful. So any event, um, that's what that is. Well, you, and, yeah. you use your voice. You listen. You know, think about our earlier conversation. Use your voice. You listen. You took action, and it's it's just a great reinvestment, um, which you that's what you've been doing. Um, that's just who, how you're wired. Um, that's at least that's how I view you, and I'm sure others as well. You, we're gonna end on this note. You, unfortunately, because I don't want to hold up hold up your day. <laughs> I know you're busy. You. Uh, placed an article um, on LinkedIn about your 
unfortunate experience with racism in corporate America. And Mm. as we talk about uplifting others, planting powerful seeds, leading boldly, which is one of my three focuses, learning and unlearning, which you experience with cooperative capital and um, the regulatory system, and just living better. Um, I, I hope you can share a, a, just a quick recap takeaway from that entire experience, and then we'll drop the link for others to join you on LinkedIn to see the full story. Sure. But um, yeah. I'm sure even walking into that, you were at a, I'm not sure, but it's okay because people need to hear this mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. So can you recap that? for us um, yeah. to end our time together um, and encourage others to stand up, speak up? Yeah, sure. Um, so that that story basically just recounts uh, my unfortunate ouster uh, from a startup um, that I co-founded with Dan Gilbert. Which, um, that was an amazing experience. I was 24 when we came to that arrangement. And I led the company as CEO for a little over a year. Um, And so um, what I uncovered through that experience was that, um, and it's not, I mean, it's not a shocker to anyone Mm -hmm. listening to this that is black or brown, right? (laughs) And maybe even um, of uh, Asian background. But, um, But, you know, ultimately, here's one thing. I'm, I, I would not allow myself to be guilty of um, or I won't try to play, you know, within the, that that spear, which is, quote unquote, using the race card. Um, however, when I think of what happened to me and I think about it now, many years removed and actually now very thankful that it happened. Um, I can reflect and look back at that experience and say, no, what happened to me wasn't wasn't right. Um, it, it wasn't right. It wasn't decent. And uh, I don't I don't care about fairness because I know life is not fair. Um, but had I been a different skin tone, what happened to me, 95% certain um, wouldn't have happened to me. And I can say that with uh, full confidence because as I referenced in the article, there are folks that did far worse than what I was... Um, reprimanded for and still are with the company today um and and then even so so any event what i learned through that experience is that um uh unfortunately we when we're in those type of environments we can't we have to move and navigate slightly differently than our peers that are of different ethnicities and different races um uh, in other words um, you can't just show up and be you or br- just bring you you kind of gotta or or what you see your white peer do doesn't give you the right or permission to do which by the way isn't the right lesson that isn't a lesson I want to put on anybody because that's not anything that I am willing to accept which is why very soon thereafter I started my own thing what I realized is that um there is no one that is going to be willing to pay me what I'm worth. And um, there is no one that could properly value me because I, even I am in the, the, the uh, 
I can't even properly value myself. I'm that valuable. And so I realized that if I was ever going to extract the true value um, that I'm worth, I would have to create the organization institution. If I was ever going to get the respect that I deserve, I was going to have to create the organizational institution and oversee that um, to get the full, to fully maximize and utilize the potential that I know is inherent within me. And I believe is inherent in many others. Now, that being said, obviously, you know, entrepreneurship, <laughs> what I just said is much easier said than done. And entrepreneurship is extremely difficult. But quite frankly, I was just fed up. I was like, man, you couldn't pay me. You can't pay me $200,000. You can't pay me $300,000 a year uh, to get me to do something that I don't want to do any longer because uh, I just know I'm worth so much more. And I know that time is my most valuable, is the most valuable resource, time and energy. And so when I realized that uh, what, what Dan afforded for me is he took me under his wing and he exposed me to a ton. And I will forever appreciate him. And even... Even after this event, you know, we still enjoy a relationship, which I'm thankful for. He's been very supportive. He's been a mentor. And um, so, but what he did is he basically gave me that exposure and he gave me the platform to allow me to understand that, like, once I was, when I was working with him, I realized I felt very comfortable in a lot of the meetings. He kept me close and he kept me around. I traveled with him. I was in 90% of his meetings. Um, uh, while I was working close with him for about a year before we co-founded the company together. So I, I felt really comfortable in those rooms. I spoke up. Um, I would, my, my, uh, my opinion was heard and valued. Um, and I got to do amazing things. So it basically afforded me, uh, something that I think is unique in that I got to be in, I got to be at that high level that I always dreamed of for myself and realized that I was comfortable and that I could do it. I could do this. And as soon as I had that, um, it was that type of education that no one could ever steal from you, right? It's like, oh no, I've walked with billionaires and millionaires and I've had millionaires call me. I've had celebrities call me for advice. So there's something about me. And I basically have been walking with that sense of knowledge ever since. And it served me extremely well. Um, and so I'm very, very thankful for that. But, you know, um, that's what got me on the, the entrepreneurship journey as as uh, basically for the rest of my life. I don't I mean, now I, I very fortunately recently got to a point where I'm financially free. I own my house free and clear, I own my transportation free and clear. And, it, you know, um, and I have enough money uh, uh, saved and to to allow me to be able to live comfortably at least in my current lifestyle for many years and so that uh supported me to be able to do what i want to do within this life um and i really really what i really want to do for the rest of my life is help others get into a similar position because i feel like that's where people really want to be a lot of people i think are confused about success and uh we've been we've been unfortunately uh conditioned to believe that success is being rich or there's a lot of people that want to be rich and don't truly understand there's no definition to rich so that's the issue in itself i believe that actually most people don't care to be rich they really just want to be financially free and um you could put a definition to financial freedom even that is subjective because different 
people will have a different definition of financial freedom. But for me, just to be clear, financial freedom was I want to read this book for the next two weeks. And I want to be able to do nothing but read this book for the next two weeks and not be concerned with how food is going to be um, put on my plate and how I'm going to get continue to have this house over my roof. You know, so that was the definition for me. Once I had that definition, I realized like, oh, shit, I don't need millions of dollars to get there. I just need to do this, that and the third. And then I had a game plan to get there. So I think that if more people were thinking in that that way, with that mindset, you know, people would realize, oh, snap, I can actually get to this financial freedom. What financial freedom affords you is the ability to, you know, focus your most valuable resource or at least not because a lot of people are in jobs that they don't enjoy. That's the most unfortunate thing because, you know, you're giving your most valuable resources, time and energy to something that you don't want to. And um, and a lot of people are in, stuck in that situation. I, I, I think our current system is modern economic slavery and not to make light of the chattel slavery that was in America, but, you know, slavery on the whole as a concept. Our current economic system is, in my opinion, a modern economic slavery system. And so what I want to be doing for the rest of my life is helping folks become free from that and get to focus their time and energy on what they really would rather desire if they could set themselves up to be more economically independent with that sir thank you thank you thank you so much